My name is Nasimir. I'm one of the directors of RaceEd. But these roundtables are co-convened collaboratively between Critique, Gender Ed, and RaceEd. Before I introduce you to the panelists uh, and get to the substantive conversation, we just have a, a few matters of housekeeping. Uh, we've organized uh, our four speakers that we have today um, in two dialogues, and each pair will speak in conversation for about 25 minutes before opening uh, up to the audience for conversation for about 20 minutes. So our speakers will foreground uh, two clusters of inquiry for, for critical consideration this afternoon. The, the first cluster will focus on, on the context of knowledge production and use, specifically in provenance, but also the ways in which decoloniality as critique in, in theory and in practice can become uh, uncoupled from questions of indigeneity, coloniality, or in ways that reproduce certain kinds of cognitive injustices that reflect uh, an uneven uh, global um, division of, of intellectual labor. Uh, and the second cluster will, will pull in a different direction, but come from um, what we think is a shared impulse, which is to ask, uh, what does the institutionalization, decoloniality of decolonization do for universities? It's true that our university and our universities are not um, institutions that are static or are, are monolithic, and that we can see them uh, as processes or even effects of processes, how um, norms become forms, as, as the late Lauren Ballant put it. But while, as Sarah Ahmed describes, it's sometimes even willful to talk about things like racism, uh, as if to, to talk about divisions is what's divisive, uh, as if the ones who bring it up are bringing it into existence. How can we bring up decoloniality? How can we we um, give it give it the, the recognition it deserves and to what end. So our first pair uh, of speakers will be Dr. Uh, Katusha Bento, who is a, an Associate Director of Race Ed. She's a, a lecturer in race and decolonial studies in the Department of Sociology. She's a political sociologist focusing on topics around the Black diaspora, the affective economy, Brazilian institutions, the nation, inter and intersectional uh, oppressions. And she'll be in dialogue with Professor Jason Arde, who is a, a professor of sociology of education at the University of Glasgow. Prior to this, Professor Arde was an associate professor of sociology at Durham University, um, and he was deputy executive dean for people and culture in the faculty of, of social science and health there. Um, after uh, Dr. Bento and Professor Arde have spoken, uh, Dr. Shaira Vadasaria, who is an associate director of uh, Ray said, will pick up the second cluster of, of conversations. Dr. Uh, Vadasaria is a lecturer in race and decolonial studies in sociology uh, at Edinburgh. Prior to join, joining Edinburgh, she held an assistant professorship at Al-Quds University in Palestine uh, and a visiting professorship uh, at Carleton University. Uh, her working monograph, Temporalities of Return, Race, Redress and Refusal in Palestine, considers what Palestinian return as enunciated through land-based movements and aesthetic and sensory practice reveals about the politics of race, redress, and refusal at the intersection of humanitarianism and settler colonialism in Palestine. Dr. Ali Kasim is a Ayash Al-Walid postdoctoral research fellow, and he's associated with the Institute Project on Decoloniality. Uh, during uh, 2021, Ali was a, a postdoctoral research fellow uh, with the Arab Council for the Social Sciences and the Carnegie Corporation of New York with an affiliation to Beirut Urban Lab at the American University of Beirut. 
So at this juncture, I'm going to hand over to my colleague, Dr. Vladasaria, who will just open with a question before handing over to Dr. Bento and Professor Arde. Nasser and good afternoon everyone. Um, it's it's an honor to be here to be here also as a guest um, in this conversation and it you know I think it's I think one helpful way to think about what this conversation is is you know one or two or three threads of a much longer and wider set of debates around how we think about this term well, what we're calling the D word, <laughs> how we think about decolonization, um, and as Professor Mir has said, how, how we think about the institutionalization of this term as well, you know, which is not a new conversation and certainly one that's not specific to the University of Edinburgh. I think um, it's very much in line with what we've seen as a recent wave of higher educational practices in the UK. So this is kind of situated in that wider context. Um, I guess as an opening question, uh, before we hand it over to Katusha and Jason, an opening question for maybe all of us to think about and, and offer to the audience um, is how we come to this term, decolonialism or decolonization, um, and what is the kind of um, historical context, geographical context, political context, that informs how we how we think about this language. So I guess I'll I'll just open the f the floor to the panelists and then I'll take the last spot and respond. I believe that the D word needs to come with many other words in order to situate decoloniality. Uh, maybe not necessarily words that are just uh, having negotiations of meanings, right? but praxis, practice of anti-racism, practices in which we address to the LGBTQI phobias, uh, practices in which ableism is directly tackled, practices in which we understand the weight of the word and the, and the labor that is required to actually produce inclusion, uh, not so much in terms of the diversity, uh, but not so much in terms of a diversity, because I believe that when it comes with anti-racism, diversity has a different kind of meaning than what, than what the, you know, the capitalist framework has been uh, using. And that's why I'm not trying to negotiate meanings here. I am trying to address to the practices of decoloniality, and and then uh, understand that from the context in which we are speaking from our hearts and we're speaking our truth in terms of how our peoples are dying and leaving, not only as the counter narrative of what coloniality is, and that's where decoloniality is for me when we arrive from the understanding that, well, we have all these anti-racist understandings, um, I'm no longer interested in only being a counter-narrative of coloniality. I'm interested in understandings 
in understanding how we are flourishing in our own narrative, in our own ways of living, not only surviving coloniality. Um, and I would like to just stay here for a while uh, so our uh, guests can also speak, but eventually I will bring you all to maybe the, the projects that I'm developing in Brazil and here in, in ways that we are talking about contexts, of course, um, in my in my case in Latin America, more specifically in Brazil, but generating transnational conversations and solidarity, uh, bringing our truths, bringing our potential to live together uh, beyond the counter narratives of coloniality. Yeah, that's why I'm situating decoloniality right now today. Thanks, Katusha. Uh, Jason, do you wanna do you wanna go next? Yeah, as always, just so eloquent and so precise and just amazing to listen to Katusha speak. I mean, I think what's interesting is that, um, and probably it's a good thing, you know, I think there are intersectional components that underpin what decoloniality means for different types of people. So as yet, I've never come across two people who have the same view on what decolonizing is. And I think, you know, how different, diasporas of people think about decolonization is um, always unique to the individual and I think having an understanding for that you know kind of leaning on what Katucha said um, is really important in terms of understanding diasporically what this looks like you know um, not only within the global north but the global south as well and I think probably as equally as important as that is that there does you know we, we are residing in a time now where I think we're, we're moving away from the melancholia of kind of colonization you know the it, it's often um spun through history as, as, as something that um is actually hugely beneficial to everyone and, and and it isn't and you know in terms of how we're now disrupting that and moving those kind of really weak um arguments um to the periphery and kind of you know exchanging that in the center with kind of this detangling of the melancholia of kind of decolonization. I think that's hugely important. I think it's also important to recognize, you know, what does decolonizing look like in the 21st century? You know, I think it's important to pay homage to our ancestors who have been hugely influential in moving the dial along more and more and more to put us in the position we're in now. But I also think there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And I think it needs to be recognized where the locus of that labor falls upon. So for me, Globally speaking, and I think I can say this with some certainty, I think the labour of that work still falls in the lap of women of colour and Indigenous women and Black women. So it's about thinking about actually what does decolonising look like now and how can we all engage in a collective sense of responsibility in ensuring that we all lift or hold the burden of that um, emotionally um, and intergenerationally kind of draining work. I think that's hugely important. And I think with that, we do need to continuously redefine what white allyship means, you know, and part of that means engaging with this kind of sometimes very difficult, uncomfortable past. And I think white people engaging this work need to take ownership of that. You know, I think that's important. I don't think that's a burden that people of color also need to carry on top of already doing the work they're already doing to decolonize, if that makes sense. It does make sense. Thank you, brother. Ali, the mic is yours. 
thanks. Those were really excellent points that I'll um, just try to pick up on um, with, you know, as part of a really great panel, which I'm very grateful for, for being invited to. I mean, I, I would just make two points here. The first one is to ask what, you know, it's a D word, right? So it's a D. Um, and I think the second part of it really matters and to think about what the second part is really matters. And the fact that this is coloniality, I think the question has to start with being, what do we mean by, by coloniality? What's the structure that we're trying to work against? And what I, what I understand with coloniality is really the darker face or the darker side of Western modernity. Um, so it's really Western modernity that, 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 that is a global structure of power that exists in the present, right? That's, um, that is a contemporary structure that comes out of particular legacies of the past, but that exists in the present and that structures the present that I am interested and invested in working against um, and in dismantling and in finding alternatives to. And I think that to, to do that and to take that position and for, for decoloniality to be a serious labor, um, it starts from, from, a, from a position whereby modernity isn't working, right? It starts from a position that where we're at today, globally, uh, in the global North, also in the global South, um, is really for the benefit of a few, and then really, I mean, in the footsteps of Fanon, even those few are turned into monsters in, in that process. So it's really not for the benefit of anyone. Um, and from that position of, of, of finding the present so frustrating um, and so unsuccessful and so incapable of providing that I turn to, to decoloniality as, as a process of dismantling it and as, and as a process of opening up possibilities for, for alternatives. And in that, I mean, the, 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 the last thing I'd really say here is that the way I would conceptualize this, this labor to, to, towards alternatives is really an epistemic labor. So I think decoloniality, the way I would understand decoloniality and the way I, I would understand the questions that, that this panel is trying to, to, to think through um, is to really center the epistemic and to really think of the epistemic as in, in it being epistemic as, as a very material and as a very political structure. Um, and, in, and in that sense, try to think of alternative cosmologies, alternative ways of being in the world, alternative models. Um, and then that really kind of raises the question of how can we think this from the position of, you know, the westernized university? How can we think of this from the position of uh, the global north? How, how can we think of this with, with all of the baggage that comes with it? Um, and how can we, how can we learn and unlearn um, a lot of the stuff that structure our, you know, our common sense, our, our, our collective consciousness are taken for granted. Um, so yeah, I would really say it, it, it's about, which, which really I think builds on, on the points that both Jason and Katusha were making on what are we, what are we working towards? Um, who has to do that? What are the possibilities of it being done? How can it be done? Um, and, and what do we do with what we have? Thanks, Ali and Jason and Katusha. I think these are these are all rich insights and they open to more questions. And I, I have to admit, I come to this conversation with more questions than answers. Um, and I feel, I feel wary about prescriptive um, responses to the question of, you know, what is decolonialism or what is decoloniality? Um, but I also, you know, I think if we, if we take, if we pivot from the, the claim, you know, that's now gotten a lot of traction from the original essay by Eve Tuck and Wayne Yang, decolonization is not a metaphor. 
I mean, I think if we if we understand the particular context that that argument is situated in, it is a response to the broad ways that social justice issues get taken up within education um, and labeled as decolonization without any real kind of redress around um, the continued land theft of indigenous societies, right? So that, you know, that, that response, I think, I do think it needs to be kind of read in the particular context that it's formulated. And the reason that matters is when we talk about decolonization, I think it, it really has varied texture across different political struggles. What does, that, what does it mean within a settler colonial context? What does it mean within a settler colonial context that is 100 years old versus uh, 300 years old? And I think that the material and the epistemic struggles embedded within, you know, do, do point to different things. So I guess I, I want to qualify my response by saying, I th yeah, I think it's, it, it, it does become challenging when the concept of decolonization gets linked to intersectionality um, in a way that makes, in a way that we're, okay, well, we're, we lose focus on the specificity of what a particular political struggle is about, even as it crosses paths and kind of intersects with um, other constituents of power. Um, but I guess if I can, if I can maybe give some like concrete texture, I, I do think that when we talk about decolonialism, at the heart of it, within at least within settler colonial context, you know, first and foremost, we're talking about land, we're talking about bodies, and we're talking about knowledge. And we're talking specifically about the politics of knowledge structures. Um, and I'd say I, I do find resonance in Fano, in Bembe, uh, in Mignolo, which we can have a, <laughs> we can have a conversation about afterwards. Um, in how, you know, they help us think about the viscerality of uh, body politics of knowledge as something that um, lends cues to how we know and how we perceive the modern world, um, where lies the kind of discomforts or the moments that get lost in translation, the instinctive, uh, psychic, affective registers of colonialism, and so I, I guess to come back to the caution about prescription, I think, the, you know, as we all know, the violence of colonialism is so multi-layered that to only think about decolonialism at the level of land is also, you know, it's it's um, does it fully represent what the violence of colonialism is? And so, yeah. I guess I, I offer that point knowing knowing that, you know, Tuck and, and Yang are not making that claim per se. Um, but yeah, I do. I, yeah, I do think that we need to find a way to speak to decolonialism in really concrete terms within an intersectional framework without running the risk of um, really losing sight of how land and knowledge and embodiment, uh, how they come together within this project. Yes, yeah, I think it's a, a brilliant reminder uh, because we are talking about the coloniality and and how this colonial power frames so much like a, it, it's not just an intersection, but it's the matrix of uh, so many layers of, of power 
that, um, as Jason said, we need to disentangle to understand each other and to see how we can, in my words, weave other constructions of reality and other futures. I would like to just come back to uh, a kind of a understanding. Maybe I would like to give a, one example uh, to an about an experience uh, regarding the D word and move into talking about our practice in academia, Jason. Um, I had a colleague, a co-worker in a department in a different country, not in the UK, uh, a person who understands himself, uh, a man, as a decolonial and feminist person. However, when delivering one piece in a museum and publishing work, he borrowed literal words of things that I said without citing and without really sharing the labor, the intellectual, the emotional labor involving such topics that are situated specifically in Brazil, in the racial discussions in Brazil, and not really articulating the labor of a woman. I, I wanted to address to what Jason said before. And when I started saying decoloniality needs to be addressed in the practices of every day, is because as much as we, we bring the genealogy and the historical uh, legacy of coloniality, uh, we need to understand that that is something that we normalized and we reproduce in our everydays, right? I'm just giving a very small example of something that at the time was really painful for me. Um, so, these are the everydays in academia. This is just one of so many stories that we already published and we will publish, we will continue publishing about this. And so many others that have like a very heavy weight on us. Uh, that I'm not sharing here because maybe for the emotional safety of everyone, I will keep it with that example. Um, but to talk about our everyday practice in academia, I wanted to just read one passage from Toni Morrison when she says, when our fears have all been serialized, our creativity censored, our ideas marketplaced, our rights sold, our intelligence sloganized, our strength downsized, our privacy auctioned. When uh, the theatricality, the entertainment value, the marketing of life is complete, we will find ourselves living not in a nation, but in a consortium of industries and wholly unintelligible to ourselves except for what we see as through as a screen darkly. I think that's a very strong passage that she's talking about and I wanted to address to the D word in academia. <laughs> when uh, are we are we going to like continue watching like uh, the the all the creative aspects of um of decoloniality being censored uh, but at the same time so many places and so many projects being financed a name of decoloniality in academia uh, with a particular agenda or even sloganizing the idea of, of the decolonial. Uh, what and how are we situating ourselves in, in this 
in this game? How are we situating our decoloniality uh, in, in this space? Because I also think that this space is changing, but maybe with a different pace than we wished for, maybe with a different pace than we are taking and how to find the balance. I will continue con talking to Toni Morrison. She says, how to be both free and situated, how to enunciate race while depriving of its lethal cling. And my question is how to be free and situated and enunciate decoloniality with its marketing cling, with its um, problematic cling that sometimes people are appropriating in order to, you know, to address to their own agendas, uh, which in the everyday could be as contradictory as a man who is stealing ideas from a black woman, right? So where do you situate yourself, Jason, in this complicated place in which academia has been a space of authorizing that kind of contradictions to happen. And with contradictions, I'm just not using this word loosely. I'm talking about contradictions because these contradictions are being hurtful and they are reproducing the ultimate um, violence that we are trying to fight in the first place. Literally just, I mean, the way you talk is so melodic and just always speaks to the point at hand. And I, I guess for me, like academia, there's, there's a couple of things with academia that has always sat uncomfortably with me. That, all, that has always, as you say, kind of been a site for reproducing, you know, aspects of, you know, being at the sharper end of the, the venom that is like colonization. And a part of it is for me that, um, you know, my moral compass steers a lot of what I do. Um, and sometimes you, when you experience something when you're younger, you think it's very normal until you come into contact with other people and you realize it's not. So the example I'll give you is that I, um, my mum had a huge, my mum is a black Ghanaian woman and she had a huge impact on how I, I saw the world. Um, and my cousins are all women of colour um, and, um, and black women at that. And I guess when you're kind of 18, 20, 25, you go into certain spaces and you engage in certain ways, you take for granted how much of that doctrination um, is deeply embedded in you and it's interwoven in the fabric of your, your being, your identity. And so what becomes really shocking is when you go into spaces that reproduce these violences towards the women and the people that you've learned from. So in my case, it, the, the, I guess the intersectional framing that I have around decolonization has come from black women. So that's that's the only one I know and that's what I've been led by. And so a lot of it always comes back to that moral compass of do the things I do align with the teachings that I had the privilege of having. And that is always the moral compass I come back to. And I think academia rewards exploitation. Um, it, it rewards extraction from people without um, recognizing and paying homage to where that knowledge comes from, as you mentioned yourself. And I think it invariably happens at the hands of women of color. And so, you know, when you kind of, you analyze these things and you kind of think, you know, how 
I always say it's not about being there, it's about how you got there. And there has to be some moral alignment to actually being someone that is attempting to decolonize. Because I think there are some fundamental principles with decolonizing that we um, that are very disposable due to the individual individualistic nature of academia and what it um, rewards, individualism, vanity, you know, exploitation, all of those things. And for me, it comes back to the same thing. You know, your intrinsic moral compass is the thing that guides you towards making the right decisions, creating space for the, for the people you're trying to mobilize, which for me, in my case, is particularly black and ethnic minority people, but particularly women of color. And it comes back to the same thing all the time. Now, I'm not gonna sit here and say I got it perfect all the time, and I do get it perfect all the time, but there has also got to be that humility for me to learn and recognize where I can learn, where I can improve. And also it's a case of learning to be in the, in the passenger seat, not the driver's seat. And I think a lot of men, sometimes men of color, like to be in the driving seat without actually doing the labor of this work. So a lot of it kind of comes back to this orientation of what I learned as a, what I was taught as a child, as an adolescent, as a young adult, and what I know now as a man who has a 15 year old daughter who is black and a seven year old son. And you know, what I want them to learn being in these spaces, particularly Taylor, my, my eldest, who, who is a black woman, and there is a sense of identity around that, that in some ways, not only does her mother embody every day, but I need to find a way of embodying and learning from as well. Thank you, especially when you address to the, your masculinity, the presence of a man, you know, in in the politics of decoloniality. That's actually something that I wanted to talk about more directly later because, um, but maybe situating our projects, the things that you are doing, the things that you are passionate about, right? Um, and how that is shaping decoloniality in your context and in your, in your maybe also the epistemological work that you do and and also Ali, what Ali said about um, having this epistemology uh, situated in decoloniality, which sometimes even just to bring to Latin American kind of work, the idea of cosmovisions when they are using indigenous and Afro Latin Americans, Caribbean uh, epistemological work, just not to say that it's only situated in, a, in an academic way, but the cosmovisions that is producing knowledge that is related to other kind of um, other natures. I, I don't know if I express myself well in that way, but they are situated in their faith, in the, in the way they believe, in the way they are one with the nature in some of the rituals and so on. That's what I'm talking about in terms of cosmovisions, yeah. that kind of a breathes uh, or overlaps the understanding of uh, epistemology that we have nowadays, especially in academia. So, yes, this heterosis male normative in how we sometimes situate decoloniality, the politics of referencing. And I, yeah, I, I, I have no, no issues in, in citing Grossvogel, uh, Mignolo, we, we may talk about those. Mm but I'm not so interested in them. Not so much now anymore. I am, I think they made a great contributions, but that's not where I situate the decoloniality where I'm coming from um, 
for example, um, Lélia Gonzalez, Beatriz Nascimento, uh, Shirley Tate. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. The beautiful and amazing Shirley Tate, Sylvia Winter, um, Sylvia Riviera Cusicanqui, who is amazing, mm -hmm. and so many others who, um, who helped us to think about the oral history, as I mentioned before, you know, not as a counter narrative, but our, our own narrative, without talking about that idea of testimony, which may have some kind of a Judeo-Christian value in it, but in the way that we are speaking our truths. So I'm saying this just to introduce the kind of uh, understanding I have in the decolonial work that I would like to deploy in my role as an academic. Um, getting, for example, fund to develop impact project in Brazil is something that for me is political because we are talking about land, you know? Mm. We are talking about the right because uh, it, it is in the context of this project that I'm talking about. We are in a um, historical site uh, in Brazil where this group of Quilombola people have a, a huge part of the land, but because they don't have a structure to plant or to, to have the garden restored every year after rain season or after dry season, um, they can't really produce their own food. That's uh, and during the pandemic, imagine being dependent of a supermarket on money to buy food. It's something that it's like the division between life and death. So uh, getting the funds to address to that project, it's not solving the problem, but I think it's the exercise of resituating the, the centrality of money, the centrality of the importance of land and centering some kind of um, voices and narratives in a different way than what we are used to do. Um, and all the activities that are being developed are, yeah, based on on the urgency and the need of that community, the cosmovision of that community, um, the rituals, the, the way they know how to deal with the land and land rights and food sovereignty as something that is political and something to be uh, part of an educational project in order to pass it on to other people. So what do you do, Jason, <laughs> in our everyday? So we can pass it on uh, also to, to our colleagues, but I would like to know what's up in your projects in your everyday, what's up now? That's, a, that's such a good question. I mean, in, in some ways, it's, it's tacit. It, it's like breathing. I don't, I probably don't think about it um, in as such as that it, it's, it, it, it's a part of what I do. You know, for me, community is hugely important. Um, and I guess a really central part of what I've tried to do is, is situate that within the idea of charity. And when you think about decolonizing and you think about particularly black and indigenous communities globally, charity, not in a literal sense, not in a Western sense of the word, where you raise money for organizations, charity in terms of how you engage with communities, people, um, make people a part of something, is, is really the methodology that has been, or the kind of epistemological um, underpinning that has 
underline my thinking around how you work with people, you know, how you engage people, how you see people. You know, I think being seen, you know, um, is one of the most underrated things in this space. You know, I think sometimes we see what we want to see because it serves our own end. I think when we're engaging in decolonizing, I think it's important to see who's doing the work. You know, and I, I'm going to say something here, and I don't mean to be rude or, or disrespectful to anybody, but I think there's a lot of people who, who, actually a nice way of saying it, I think there's a lot of people who theorize about decolonizing and race, and, and I don't think there's much evidence of the practice of it. So I think there's, you know, the, the praxis element, you know, effect, you know, I think when you're affecting communities in this endeavor, I think the thing they gravitate towards and the thing that um, creates a legacy for everybody is the practice of what you do. The theory complements it. The theory, in my opinion, shouldn't underpin it. You know, what would I rather? Somebody who gets dirt under their fingernails or somebody who sits there theorizing about, you know, what we should do and what we could do, but always keeps their nails and their hands nice and clean. And I think that that is a form of oppression because it's, you know, it's, it, it still resides with the idea of who, are, who, who is doing the oppressing, you know, um, who are the hands of the oppressor? And I, you know, and I think trends are always very interesting to observe. Four, five, six years ago, I think there were a lot of, you know, white academics, you know, I think engaging in decolonizing and race work very irresponsibly. I don't think they were, I think they were talking on behalf of people of color and making claims really that they had no right to make claims about. And I think, you know, in terms of utilizing funding streams to mobilize issues around race, you know, there wasn't actually a lot of evidence. Well, actually there is evidence to suggest it wasn't actually benefiting people of color, you know? And I think what we've seen now in the last six years, seven years is, is really a changing of the guard. We're seeing amazing people like yourself leading the vanguard of a revolution and really drawing the praxis link between community you know, spirituality and theory. There's a, there's, a, there's a causal link, there's a link there, which means that all parts, all people are recognized as important and integral in decolonizing work. It's not the province or the privilege of people who reside in the ivory tower, which in itself embodies all of the tenets of colonization, you know, all the Eurocentricities of a very white dominant canon. And I think that, you know, what, what is a beautiful thing for me is that I always felt that um, the work is in the praxis, you know, and the praxis part, the practice is the most important part than the theory. And for me, I guess is, I guess the thing that I, I can go to sleep at night and, and kind of feel like, okay, we're getting somewhere, is that I never disassociated those two things. I, I think everything I've done has been situated in the practice of what I've spoken about theoretically and what I do. But the complacency comes when you die on your own rhyme, right? So, you know, the vanity of, of man is that you look at yourself and you think, oh, I've done all right here. I've helped a lot of people. And you kind of think, well, no, not really, because um, my, my individual success is a reflection of just how many people have been disadvantaged by the systems we currently have. And so a lot of my epistemological thinking is around, right, what can we do differently? How can we open this space up? How can we acknowledge those that are actually doing the work and bring them into these academic spaces? Because academic spaces should be civic facing. They should really be an embodiment of the community. And all too often they're not. And I think that's what I have taken my lead um, from exceptionally gifted people like yourself 
you know, bell hooks, you know, uh, people like Heidi Merza, Shirley Ann Tate, um, you know, Andrea Davis. There are people that you see, you know, Gloria Ladson Billings. There are, there are people who have really made um, this work as part of their being and as part of the community. And that for me is where I take my lead from. So I don't have an epistemology or a methodology as such. It's more that I observe what I don't like and I try not to do that because I do think that when it comes to decolon the work of decolonizing in race, I, I think a lot of people say the right things, but, but I, I don't honestly think hand on heart, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that those, there's, a dis there's a disalignment between what people say and what they do. And that's, that's an observation that I've made that maybe I'm getting a bit leery because maybe I am where I am now. But I think it's something I always thought, and I think I always said it in a more articulate way, but I think probably I'm saying it now in a more unfiltered way. But I do think there's a disconnect there because a lot of people say stuff, but then you have people that are still kind of, you know, engaging in violent acts towards women of color, for example. And, you know, you have these people talk, and you kind of think there's a massive disconnect between what you're saying. And if that's your methodology, that worries me, it worries me in a, in a big way, you know? Mm. No, thank you. Thank you especially for bringing this this kind of worry to us uh, because it's something to think about. Uh, thank you for sharing also the experiences. Uh, Shira, I would like to pass the mic on uh, so we can move the conversation to the questions that you that you were also situating the coloniality. Okay, thanks, Katish. But if I can just really quickly touch on, on a point that Jason made, which I thought was so, like, key, profoundly key, um, is this relationship between, you know, knowledge and, and, and production as well, and how I, 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 I totally agree that I think, like, if we're thinking about decolonization at the level of ethics, then we have to think about how, who are we in lineage with at the level of our scholarship? And this is not just citation politics at the level of identity politics. This is which histories are we in, indebted to? Which uh, historiosity, which narration of history is our thinking indebted to? And I think that, you know, oftentimes, like it's a catch-22. Um, how do we tell the story of empire? How do we tell the story of colonialism? without recentering its own archive? How do we actually pose different sets of questions to that archive? And I think that it, that it does mean um, being so careful about what, who and what we're in conversation with. And at the level of community building too, do we, you know, do we see the communities we're allied with as producers of knowledge? And if so, how are they participating? in this process of knowledge production. And, and so I absolutely just want to affirm that I think, um, you know, practice and process is so key to how we approach, how we think about decolonial work. And, and, it, and it, yeah, it's so upsetting to see these things disjointed. It's, it's, it's like maddening. I guess the other kind of part of this conversation um, that we want to bring up, and this is something that you know I think Ali works on and I work on myself, um, 
is the question of race in this project of decolonization. And I'll just I'll share candidly, honestly, um, when I came to Edinburgh and and really the the kind of lived context that shapes my thinking around anti-racism and decolonization is in the context of Turtle Island and Palestine, right? So these are two very particular settler colonial configurations. Um, and the context I was coming from in, in Canada was one where, you know, the communities that I was involved with were trying to think through actually, um, in what ways does anti-racist struggle in Canada erase uh, indigenous claims to land and sovereignty? How, how does the settler state attempt to absorb um, indigenous communities into a multicultural liberal framework? And what is the violence of that? So when that's the terrain, how do we make political claims or social claims? What does it, make, what does it mean to make claims within um, a citizenship framework on land that is not our land? Right. And so these are these were, you know, kind of key, strong debates. Um, and then think then thinking in the context of Palestine, I mean, I think that there is a really strong and robust ongoing conversation right now being led by Palestinian scholars and activists on how we think about the politics of race and racial justice in a context of um, a freedom struggle, essentially. And what do these terms come to mean um, when we're thinking about them against um, really like a wider, you know, political, economic, social structure that is suffocating day-to-day -day life? Um, what we learned from the kind of unity intifada that took place last spring is we saw, you know, Palestinians in Gaza, in the West Bank, um, as well as in the in 48 or Israel proper, we saw a unified political agenda um, around what this freedom struggle is. And it didn't, it didn't, um, you know, it would be easy to think that Palestinians inside of Israel, for instance, would, would, would want to be included, would want, you know, would want to have racial justice as part of their day-to-day -day life. But what racial justice means in that broader context is, is quite complicated and, and it really you know, can't come before the end of an apartheid structure um, and before the return of lands. And so, okay, just to preface what I'm about to say in that context, when I came to Edinburgh, to Scotland, and this is the first time that I'm, well, I, you know, I had lived in the UK for a year, but really the first time I'm now setting up a life in the UK, and very quickly I got I was so confused. So what what <laughs> what was happening? This was a moment at the start of the pandemic. This is in the um, right shortly after we saw the killing of George Floyd and the reverberations of that globally, um, and we saw the reverberations of anti-racism globally. And all of a sudden, I was thinking how and in what ways is anti-racism translating to decolonial calls in the UK? How is this becoming institutionally adopted while the institution is very much invested in ongoing colonial projects? Um, and how, how are we to kind of parse these things apart? And so, you know, just in my observation, I thought, well, how is decolonization translating into anti-racism? 
And how is anti-racism actually becoming a project about inclusion? And so how, how does decolonization translate to be about inclusion? And this is not the decolonial project that informed the ways that I you know, have come to think about um, what's, what claims to, to freedom actually mean. And so I guess, um, Ali, to open a question for you, I know that you've also been thinking long and hard about um, how we understand the relationship between race and colonialism, and specifically decolonial studies, critical race theory, and even sociology of race. And I think we've had a little bit of conversation about the ways these things get collapsed in the UK context. Um, what, um, what are your thoughts? <laughs> what are your thoughts on this? Um, well, that's, that's a lot. Thanks, Shaya. That's a lot. I mean, those are really, there's so much to pick up on already in all of the conversation that's been unfolding. And it's really getting me thinking a lot about, about these questions. And I'm like, it's, it's, it is, it is, these are really very, very challenging. And to, to use the words you've used, Shaya, really haunting questions in many different ways. Um, but what I would say, I mean, the way I come to, to all of this decolonial, de, de decolonizing conversation um, is, is really situated, of course, uh, situated within my own body and within my own experiences and histories that have a lot to do with growing up in, in Lebanon um, and kind of mostly going through education there. Um, but at the same time, growing up in a Catholic French westernized uh, school whereby specific narratives of of civilization and of progress and of development and of democracy and of inclusion and of um, and of freedom and of liberty and and and, and so on very much ingrain self-hate within within the colonized right um, and very much ingrain a, a self-orientalism and very much ingrain a, a, a sense of being inferior and a sense of pursuing liberation through the pursuit of um, of westernization and through the pursuit of modernization, and I think that's that is scarily very very powerful and very successful. And I think the role of education and institutions, right, not higher education and also education more broadly, within that uh, as as central institutions of producing and reproducing that, is what gets me to say, okay, when we talk about race and racialization and anti-racism, and when we talk about inclusion, and when we talk about um, when we talk about the colonial and the decolonial and coloniality and decoloniality and colonialism and decolonialism, um, who are we talking about? Which, which other subject are, are we talking about? And I think that's where, that's where it gets really tricky for things like inclusion politics, right? Who are we including? Um, it's a lot like that, you know, the, the whole good Muslim, bad Muslim, right? Um, it's, it, it's a lot about being included only on the terms of the colonizer, right? And, and that's where it becomes epistemic. That's where, that, that's where it becomes, it's, it's not really, that's why for me, I mean, it, it's really difficult to think about race and racism because what do you do with the, it's a question that we've discussed, I think. What do you do with, with the phenotypical? What do you do with the embodied? What do you do with the physical and the material? But what do you do with the epistemic as well? Um, how, what kind of liberation can we have if we really center the fact that there is so much self-hate and that there is so much self-orientalism and that there is so much um, self-inferiority amongst and within colonized people, both in the global south and in the global north. 
right? And 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 we come from that. I think. I mean, I come from that. I carry that. You know, I I I carry that baggage very very strongly. Um, and to think of alternatives really get, gets me thinking. Of, well, what kinds of alternatives within? You know, because what what coloniality has done is colonize our common sense in a way where we have, particularly in relation to the ideas of progress, in relation to the idea of time and and um, you know this this mu this question of futurity and this question of ancestrality and this question of how do we relate to each one of these and what what futures do we or can we envision um, what 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 is within our imaginaries and what is outside of our imaginaries. Um, and I think we can't really think of the colonial and the decolonial in its material and in its epistemic without really thinking about what we can't even think of anymore. And, and the question of how do we bring that back in? How do we make that possible again? Yeah, I think you're all, you've also opened up You've opened up important insights that actually, you know, circle back to the conversation Katusha and Jason were having as well around. Um, so the question of who is at stake in this project, who is involved in this project, um, what is the role of allies in this project? And I, but I also think you're complicating this politics of inclusion in an important way. And so when you talk about internalization of racism, colonialism, sexism, you know, what that also means is that it's not just about, um, yeah, putting a people of color, racialized people at the table, assuming that that's actually going to lead to radical transformation, given the violence of colonialism and its, its, its uh, practice on the psyche, right? And at the same time, I think um, both Jason and Katusha, you you know, you both highlighted, well, what does it mean to see also ourselves represented in this work, and how do we, how do we think about, um, how do we think, yeah, how do we think carefully about, kind of, how how we do this work as a collective, while also thinking through these ethical questions. Um, I don't know if Jason or Katusha, you kind of want to come back because I do, th you know, I do think it's a really important question. At, at the same time, in the spring of of May 2020, I, you know, there was a, a barrage of requests coming at the university for us to really produce resources around anti-racism. And again, this version or decolonization. And again, this decolonization was anti-racism, which was inclusion. And, um, you know, it made me think about this um, beautiful piece that Sadia Hartman had written in response to the killing of George Floyd. And we read this for um, our Understanding Race and Colonialism course. And she asks, you know, how does, um, how does violence against black people become resource as white pedagogy? How does this, how does this, you know, all of a sudden get repackaged and in, in demand? And what are the um, sense of the relations of power that go into the demands as well, wanting to know and to consume as though there's like a quick answer and there's no quick answer here, right? There's no quick anti-racist learning or um, undoing what is a long history of, of colonial powers at this institution ongoing as well. So I guess this question of like, how do we collectively do this work um, 
in a way that doesn't, I think, yeah, exhaust <laughs> racialized colleagues. And at the same time, um, what what is the work of, 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 of white people? And also what is the work of dismantling white supremacy, right? And I think, you know, the other question I had for you, Ali, was, was given where we're located, should we be talking about decolonization? I mean, I think Chizomo is on this call as well. And, you know, our part of this conversation is also in, in, in homage to the amazing conversations you've been opening up around what, do, what does it mean to talk decolonization inside of Europe? Well, exactly what does that mean if we're not thinking about it just in terms of anti-racism? Yeah, just, just to pick up on, on some of the stuff there, I think one key thing that the Westernized University gets us doing is it distracts us with a lot of stuff um, that we kind of get encompassed by and in, and then we end up not being able to do any of the other work. And I think a part of that is really, really basic stuff, like it, to go back to Katusha's point on the everyday that are situated in our everyday. And a part of that is in pushing us to think that we need to reinvent the wheel in order to decolonize, that no one has ever done this before. This is something really new that we kind of, we're doing something innovative, you know, and, and this is like, this is, you know, big work and we have no idea what to do. Uh, and we need to kind of think this whole process through from the start. And that's not really the case because decolonization has been, you know, is as long as colonization. Um, and when, when you were saying this earlier and I, I was thinking, well, yeah, this is exactly what the Haitian revolution did, right? In terms of who gets included and who doesn't, right? They, they even constitutionalized it um, when they defined you know, when they had that whole thing about who can and cannot vote after the Haitian Revolution, and it was Black people can vote, but Blackness was identified as anti-imperialist. You know, it was that political position that situated you as um, here or there, right? And, and I think learning from those experiences and learning from those struggles, and, and, and we have them, they're all over, they're all over the world, they're, you know, within, outside of Europe, um, they've been happening for a very, very long time. So I think one key thing in terms of relearning um, a lot of the stuff that we think through is to look at those experiences and to look at the struggles of people across the world that have been invested in decolonization in, in its various forms and its, in its various scales um, and to see, well, what can we learn from that? And, and I think this also goes back to what Jason was saying about maybe the word I would use here would be, you know, listening, the ability to listen to, to, to what others are and what they can be and what they can teach us um, to, to, to from there start thinking about how can we decolonize this Western institution and how can we dismantle it in, in, in many different ways. Thinking it from Europe, thinking it from specifically a place like Edinburgh, I mean, for me, I've, you know, I, I've, I've said this to Shai, these are very violent institutions, right? They're, they're violent in their architecture, they're violent in, um, in their materiality, they're violent in their politics, they're violent in the, the conversations that do and do not take place. Um, they're violent in terms of what they make us do, you know, in the everyday, in the classroom, in a, in a, in a seminar room and so on. Um, and I think that's a lot of burden and that's a lot of weight and, and, and that's, a, that's an everyday struggle. So what do, what do we do with that? How do we deal with those challenges? At the same time, aware of the fact, and, I, and I'll just end with this, aware of the fact that at, at the American University of Beirut and, and our other, I know this conversation is happening at other westernized institutions across the global south, um, a lot of colleagues have been trying to introduce work 
that's beyond the Western canon of thinking, right? To introduce scholars and thinkers and intellectuals who are anti-colonial. And that has always faced a lot of resistance because there's this push for recognition, right? The politics of recognition. And it's, if we're going to give our students a recognized international world-leading education, it has to be the education that people in the UK and in the US get, right? It has to, it has to mimic that. And if we don't mimic that, then our students will be disadvantaged on the international labor market. That will be putting them, you know, regardless of what we think or regardless of what we would like to do, we cannot but give our students what students in the West get. And I think that's really, really dangerous because um, obviously there's a process of erasure that's happening all the time there. But it's really interesting that once this decolonization trend took off in the West, it has opened up cracks to say, well, you know, the biggest university, Cambridge is decolonizing, the universities in the UK are decolonizing, you have to decolonize. Um, does it make sense for you not to? And I've actually been in conversations with people in different institutions in the global south where they were like, oh, this conversation is happening in, in Colombia, then you know, we, we have to have this conversation as well. And, and it actually unfolds that way. And that's really, really problematic on so many different levels. But it also kind of gets us thinking about why, I mean, for me, why is this happening here? Why should we be invested in a decolonial conversation within the global north and within the institutions of the global north? Um, and, and what do we do with that? You know, what do we do with all of the, the limitations that automatically enforces and the reproductions that gets us implicated in? Mm -hmm. Yeah, just to, I mean, just to quickly add to that, I think it's also the way that decolonizing the university gets imagined here at the level of curricula and at the level of like f filling a gap in a syllabi, putting on one additional scholar from the global south and thinking that, that, that okay, we've checked our box. We So now we now we now have like a very, uh, you know, positivist quantitative you know, method section, and then, okay, let's have one reading by Mignolo, and then all of a sudden we would decolonize the curriculum. It's actually an undoing of the entire knowledge structure that undergrids the, the syllabi. That's, that's what it would mean to decolonize the curricula. And so, I, you know, I, the, the idea of it being institutionalized um, and, and thought about in, 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 in a way that could have a fast turnover as well by colleagues that are also not trained in decolonial studies, as though this doesn't require careful study. And, you know, also, who, who are we as we participate in this? And none of these questions really factor into the, to the decolonial agenda. And I think just to circle back to Katusha's really powerful question about, well, how, how do we negotiate these, these roles that we have? As we know, this is the terrain that we're in. The D word has been cashed in and we are in this project. We have different stakes in the work. And and yet, you know, this 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 is this is like the, the messy web of power relations that we're in. So how do we resist being props? How do we resist being thought about as quota fill, fillers, right? Um, and and actually carve the space we want to without subjecting ourselves to injury and harm. The violence that, as you mentioned, Ali, that is in the moment that you step into the classroom.
Thank you very much, everybody, for listening to Undersong, Race and, and Conversations Otherwise. So you can find all our episodes uh, on our RaceEd website, or on SoundCloud and on Spotify. Uh, please subscribe to our new podcast episodes and share with your colleagues, your, your students, your, your friends. And we will look forward to speaking to you very soon. Thank you and goodbye.